Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. Hosted by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Every time I think I'm going to do that wrong. But I did it right. And you also have to stop yourself from laughing yeah, right at the end. I can't look anyone in the eye. <laughs> um, so G, what has this week meant to you? I have been really into podcasts. Me too. And I really enjoyed an episode of the Deliciously Ella podcast where they had Holly Tucker. Oh, I still need to listen and, to that. And uh, she's the founder of notonthehighstreet.com, which is amazing. And I enjoyed What does the... it do exactly? Not on the High Street. Yeah. Um, so it's all small businesses and independent brands brought together under one umbrella, which is that website. I think it was like the first like Camden Street Fair or Christmas Market, which is it Christmas Market. And, um, you know, all the vendors were there and the location and then it would rain and then someone's mm. child would be ill. And she was like, I need a place where there's not going to be weather. And, you know, and <laughs> what a like, British it, problem. I internet, love that. The internet. Yeah. And, no, and not on the high like street is a multi, I mean, yeah, I didn't actually know about not on the high street until the university and then some of my friends. I've definitely me. heard of it. But you but can I wasn't get all exactly sorts sure. of niche bespoke presents for, for people. It's really great. Um, so I enjoyed that episode so much because it talked about how to start a business and what it's like to run a business. And so then I discovered her podcast, which is called Conversations of Inspiration. And that's really amazing. So she is has it an interview podcast? Yes. So she had Deliciously Ella on that. And that was one of the best interviews I've heard from Delici- Deliciously Ella. But also Julie Dean, who started the Cambridge Satchel Company. And Molly Oh, so interesting. Yeah, who started Selfish Mother, um, which again, was really successful. So those were really cool and I basically want to start a business because I've been listening to them. <laughs> um, I also discovered Maltby Street Market on Sunday, which is an amazing market in East End of London or Bermondsey. So it's like kind of slightly east. And I'm just really discovering that like food, part of London. Clothes? Food, food. Okay. Uh, food. Best just, thing that you had? I uh, had a vegan pizza Ooh. and an amazing Bloody Mary. Oh, yummy. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a really nice place to sort of hang out and I'm enjoying discovering... East London, because I don't really know it very well. Um, and what else did I do this week? Oh yes, I took my brother to uni, which was surprisingly emotional when he walked off at the end to go back to his halls to sort of make dinner, and then and we were just by the car, and he was just walking off on his own. I suddenly welled up, and I just oh. thought, little T. <laughs> <laughs> A li- like doesn't feel little. I know, but it's weird to just yeah. the youngest to. Like, I'd feel weird about that if my yeah. brother went to uni, which yeah. he's not doing. But um, and my, unfortunately, my mum couldn't go, so I promised her that I would do everything that she would have done mm-hmm. to set up his room and like do all the shopping. That's like, make so sure cute. It's, like perfect, yeah. Um, especially just because I didn't have the easiest start, so I was I was just really nervous that he wouldn't but he'll be fine like he's so much more self-assured than I am and I think also that year (laughs) out between school and university can make a real difference of people feeling more independent from Mm. the beginning of starting university I don't know yeah I think so I went straight from school so I kind of just it was like a weird sort of like school summer exciting and then boom uni and it's you kind of don't really have time to adjust Mm. um and then I also listen to a, a podcast that I think you also did, which was the Scarlett Curtis. Yes. Why feminists don't wear pink. 
or wear no, pink? No, feminists don't wear pink. Oh, sorry. And it's... Feminists don't wear pink and other lies, <laughs> which is uh, a podcast to go alongside with her book that she's curated. Yes. Um, and her first episode is with Saoirse Ronan. And who was in Ladybird and is going yeah. to be Mary Queen of Scots in the upcoming film with Margot Robbie. So excited women. about yeah, that. Me too. Yeah, and Little Women, yeah. directed by Greta Gerwig. Let's go to Mary Queen of Scots. And Little Women. And 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 don't go without me. <laughs> I won't go without <laughs> you. But I re- what I really liked about it, that it was just a, a super chilled chat about feminism and growing up and what it kind of means to have this sort of conversation about women, men, relationships... Uh, work, sport, mm. all of those things in a very informal, informal, relaxed way. Mm. So inclusive. One of the most inclusive arenas, actually, so far. Yeah, it was really good. I'm really looking forward to seeing the other guests and can't wait to read the book. And we're going to an event, which we will put link yeah. to the tickets in the um episode description. Yes. And I'd say that my theme of the week has actually been feminism. Because mm. I have been to a brilliant play with my wonderful godmother, Gillian, called Sylvia, which is based on the life of Sylvia Pankhurst, who is going to be our first figure. So more on that coming up. Mm. And I have also started reading The Guilty Feminist by Deborah Francis White, which I'm finding so informative, but also absolutely hilarious. And, oh yeah, when I spoke to you on the phone, I read out a huge huge page, and I would do the same, but it would end up taking the entire podcast, and it would just become an audiobook of The Guilty guilty Feminist. feminist. Uh, And I have also read a very good article on Ruth Davidson. Yes, that I had saw, quite a feminist article, like I angle to it. I saw some stuff about that. that she doesn't want to, how she doesn't want to be prime minister. Yeah, which I was really disappointed. I know. About. I thought of you when I saw it. Oh, Charlotte's going to be really upset now. But but I mean, I completely understand. Yeah. I just think who would want to take on that job? Yeah. It's so you no, know, you just wouldn't mm. want to. Mm. Um, but really, really transparent and open about her mental health issues and self harming and just her her career and her life and what she loves and it was just a really lovely long interview in the Sunday Times um, which hopefully we'll also be able to link and the final thing was Ways to Change the World with Richard Curtis Scarlett Curtis's dad and I just love the positivity of this podcast because as he rightly said so much of what is reported is all of the murders and the famine and and obviously they are things that we need to know about and they're happening but quite often the progress that we've made in the last 10 years in terms Mm. of this disease or how many girls are now being educated and obviously there's a long way to go and I really want to re-listen to it actually and that's when you know it's a brilliant podcast. Um, It's been really about that whole family this week. It sounds like I'm stalking them. I listened to Emma Freud on Dolly Alderton. But that I can listen to again again and again and again. again. So I listened to that. Emma Freud is Richard Curtis's wife. and No, not wife. Uh, Girlfriend for life. Girlfriend for life and Scarlett Curtis's mum. And they're just all all three... I want to hear the the other children now. They're just all great on podcasts. <laughs> so another thing that um, has been a contentious issue this week with um, some of my friends at work is this question, and I'm going to ask you this question. And okay. I want your honest opinion. Okay. Now I'm the only one in the office that has this view, and I feel like hopefully you'll agree with me because I think I'm right, obviously, but everyone else doesn't think I'm right. Can you spoon someone 
completely platonically? <laughs> That's a serious <laughs> question. God, I, was, I didn't know where that question was going to go. And that really <laughs> is not what I was expecting at all. Uh, Should we describe spoon for someone who doesn't know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be my guest. Okay, so it's when you, you sort of snuggle and you both face the same direction... Like, like two spoons. Like two spoons, and so you're just, you know, two spoons facing the same direction in, in the shelf or the, the drawer. Yeah, is this okay. Is this as, like, a heterosexual person? I'm not giving you any was, details. I'm if it was me it and another... Uh, well, if I was, like... <laughs> sounds so weird. I've had it where we've had, like, a whole chain of like a multiple spoon yeah where i've been like in the to middle be, to be fair that then question had... earlier is fair enough because you, it's, it is different in in if that you, yeah. if you identify straight or like gay or bi and you say actually if it's just another girl yeah platonic, but not necessarily if it's a boy but also if you know like a whole load of my family friends when we were all at a festival together mm. with the golds mm. and we all just lined Spooned. up and we were so cold and we all just were like it was about five of us, literally. What do I mean, like, spooning? Okay. Um, I don't think that I... There's been very many scenarios where it hasn't been... I agree. Platonic? This is, this, is my, this is my opinion. I have never spooned another guy, just me and him, who I don't fancy. Like, I can't do that. I just don't think there's been very many scenarios like that have come up with that. It's okay, I just wanted to clear that up. I'd say I probably, I, pro- I probably would agree with you, though. Yeah. But then I'm not really someone who's had really close friends who are boys where it's always just been completely platonic. Mm. So I just think it depends on every individual. Yeah. Well, I was the, I was the one who stuck out. <laughs> Did so literally everybody else in the office say? Not, I mean, not we didn't ask every single person in the office, but like a good, a good eight people all disagreed with me. Um, I still think I'm right, but <laughs> the first figure this week is Sylvia Pankhurst, inspired by Charlotte's recent visit to the theatre to see Sylvia the play. And when you originally said Sylvia Pankhurst, I thought as many people probably do. Oh, Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst, Christabel Pankhurst, Pankhurst suffragette movement. Um, I actually know someone from uni who has the last name Pankhurst. Oh, that's so cool. Hello, fun fact. Um, I'm actually going to question her when I go see her in October as to whether her family are related. <laughs> Sorry in advance. Great idea. Um, and I thought, oh, I actually don't really know much about Sylvia Pankhurst at all. Literally, I went into my research completely blind other than I knew she was part of the suffragette movement. And I went down series of black holes and I found some really cool lectures on the podcast app, which I'll link below. Um, But before we delve deep, why don't you tell us about the theatre production that you saw? Okay. Um, Yeah, just to bounce off that point as well, the I walk past the blue plaque almost every single day for Emmeline Pankhurst and for Christabel Pankhurst and I think and I actually I walked past it this morning and I was just like oh I'm gonna check exactly what it says and it's interesting that Sylvia Pankhurst isn't on there and I don't know if she had broken away from her family by the time that they lived there or if she's just not included as a name in the same way that her mother and her sister are. I heard that her mother technically disowned her when she refused to marry the father of her child. 
I think there were all sorts of different stories. They didn't okay. explore that in the play. but okay. So, yeah, the play was done at the Old Vic Theatre. It's on until the 22nd of September. I hope you can still get tickets. And if you can, everybody listening, I really encourage you to have a look and see if you can go. Um, I found out about it because PwC sponsor the preview. And so you can get tickets for only £10, which is amazing. But this was done by Kate Prince and her company Zoo Nation she's part of that company and it was basically the story of Sylvia Pink Pankhurst and the suffragette movement from sort of 1890s up to 1918 obviously when they got the vote um for some women not for all women it's important Mm -hmm. to remember that and that's really important for Sylvia specifically because she really pioneered the working woman yes working class absolutely and actually I didn't realize really ignorantly how much that played into women getting the vote. Actually, it was a hell of a lot of working women in North of England that basically was just all mass strike mm. and mass protest that really helped us get the vote. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why we're not taught that, but we really aren't. And even when we are taught about feminism and the suffragette movement, we're taught more about the women who, you know, like even the Kensington Society, again, really near where I grew up. Um, and they were, you know, women who had husbands who could support them and they didn't necessarily you know they had more um resources and more contacts maybe Mm. i don't know i'm I'm sounding very modern as i say that but actually it was very true of the time and and so you really wanted the working woman to also have the same and then talking about working class people yes and actually was like actually this goes far beyond women it's actually everyone and look at these awful conditions and look at these you know and all the trade unions mm. and all of that sort of stuff. And I just, oh, I loved, I loved reading about it. Yeah, it was, it's, she's such an interesting mm. person. And really, I wish that I'd learned more about her before. Mm, me too. So I'm just really glad that I was able to go and see this play and learn more about her life. And things like her relationship with Kia Hardy, who mm-hmm. was the first leader of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And there was, and he was a massive supporter of women getting the vote. Yeah. To the point where it actually jeopardised his position as party leader. Yeah. And there's a real socialism aspect to the way that Sylvia Pankhurst wanted it to be. And also, interestingly, because we always learned that the suffragists were the ones who weren't violent. And the suffragettes were the ones who did use violence in order to make Mm. more noise. But we say violence, which means, you know, starting fires and chaining themselves to things. But, you know, women were also physically beaten and sexually assaulted treated like animals and force fed worse than animals like honestly Mm. and force fed to the point they couldn't move so Sylvia Pankhurst was the the most force fed out of any prisoner yeah couldn't move she couldn't Mm. sit upright I think so sickening so when so when we say violence I always want to make that yeah, completely. Because I don't want someone to just turn off and go, oh, they were violent, mm. or like take the credit away. And also, away from they it. didn't kill anybody. No, no. By violent, we're talking Obviously about. Obviously, there was the just... death of Emily Davidson at the King's Race. On that note, the first time I'd ever been introduced to the suffragette movement ever was age nine, and I read Falling Angels by Tracy Chevalier, which is a beautiful novel. It's probably one of my favourite books of all time, and it was a story about her and her life and and what it was like to be a woman of that time and not be able to work and sort of having PTSD and like all sorts of but but because it was it's aimed at slightly younger children it's explained in a very simple way and I just could completely imbibe and understand it even though I was so young I'd love to read that yeah 
It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, so this production was just, it was so fresh and it was so different to anything I've seen before. And literally everybody stood up at the end. It was wow. so brilliant. And the other thing is that, which I'd never seen before either, the, so Kate Price and the, I think he was the producer, came on at the beginning and they said, um, thank you so much all for coming. Remember, this is a preview. And also the leading lady who was supposed to play Sylvia Pankhurst was really unwell. And so she couldn't actually perform. And the understudy had to step in. She'd only done the second act without a book that very same day. No. And she did almost the entire thing with no book. You literally wouldn't have known. If they hadn't said, you would have no idea. She was so brilliant. And the granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst was in the audience that night. And I'm so glad that she saw that performance. It was a really, you really good at night. the same time? Yeah. So cool. And Beverly Knight played Emmeline Pankhurst. Wow. So this was the other great thing about this play is that over half of the cast, which I think was 15 people, were people of colour. And Kate Prince has had to defend this and there's been all sorts of things saying, you know, why have we got someone who is of colour playing someone who wasn't of colour in history? And you think, well, what about Cleopatra who's been played by Numerous white, white people? What yeah. about... There's so many characters mm. where it's been whitewashed... And I thought that that was a really great way, just to the points that are made in British, obviously by F. Will Hirsch, where we, as a society, we don't acknowledge and look at the black history of Britain and the role that they have, you know, played in the abolition of slavery and all of this. And I just found this, this is suffragette movement. Exactly, exactly. And I just yeah. thought this is so brilliant. And the other thing is that their dancing and their singing is just so like uplifting and mm. wonderful and so it was a mus it's a musical and they have hip hop funk rap like disco and um Churchill's mother who was played by Jade Hackett just had everybody laughing she was so outspoken and she'd just go into like a garage number mm. um and would just be telling Winston what to do and Churchill came across very badly in my research yeah and the stuff that I hear about Winston Churchill oh my word mm. what I want Scary. to know is how influenced he was by his mother and by his wife because in the play it came across that his mother was very anti-women getting the vote mm. and then was changed her perspective partly as a result of Clemmy Ch um, Churchill's wife because mm. I think Clemmy was always very supportive of yeah, it yeah she was she so that was an interesting element to it as well an American in America I remember got the vote you know 30 40 years before mm. uh, some women in America sorry mm -hmm. um, and also Australia and New Zealand obviously being the first yeah uh, but women in South Australia then got the vote two years after New mm. Zealand so Mm. Yeah, and the other thing that it touched on was um, like homosexual relationships within the suffragettes, mm. um, which I read a whole article about. So interesting, and it's all from diaries that have come out. And I think that historians writing novels and books and things they've sort of skated over it Completely. because they. But now we're in a time where we can have these conversations mm. and we can just be more inclusive and actually more real. Yeah, it was um, really great. Well, the things that I found most interesting about Sylvia. Um, is that, so this, she started working for the Women's Social and Political Union, which was founded and set up by her family, so Emmeline and Christopher. Emmeline was her mother, Christopher was her older sister. Her father, Richard Pankhurst, was a lawyer um, in Manchester, had, you know, affluence because, you know, he was a barrister, mm -hmm. um, but was also very pro-women getting the vote. Um, and he, he was an activist, really, was he? Completely activist, and again, we need, you know, it's, it's about men as well. 
So that's what I love about Sylvia Pankhurst's yeah. feminism as and well. Her story. It's, it's, it's not all about that. And yeah. Her, and, and then her sister and her mum began to resent that about her. And I think she, mm. um, I think they, one of the times they stopped talking to her, there were many times where they just, you know, broke communication. And one of them was her endorsing her local MP who was male mm. um, to, yeah, for mm-hmm. Parliament. And they mm-hmm. really disliked that. And again, I like to bring back the context and think, you know, y- yes absolutely want to be inclusive of men and we absolutely do but when you've been in a society where you've been so oppressed by a lot of males who are high power and again sexually assaulted physically assaulted i can completely understand why there would have been a huge anti-man sentiment Mm. but long term that's just not sustainable and they're just going to shut down you need to include everyone and that's why sylvia was so brilliant is she included everyone and then really went forward with bringing the labor party movement the the workers movement and started the east london federation of suffragettes um which basically imbibed a lot of socialism and Mm -hmm. was very inclusive and also really supported the bolshevik revolution so she started that in 1917, which is the same year as the Bolsheviks. Yeah. Um, again, I didn't realise that that link there. Mm. Um, but that was really interesting to learn all of those things about her. And she went to the Royal College of Art in South Kensington. So yes. I grew up around her. Do you, so it's, it's, and I just never knew. So Yeah, I so she trained her. as an artist. Mm. And some of her work, I think, is in the National Portrait Gallery. Fantastic. Well, it's certainly on the website. I don't know if it's displayed. Uh, yeah, and to to that point about including men and everybody in feminism, this is what mm. partly what Scarlett Curtis talked about, Absolutely. and that it is it's all about everybody. And if we have more equality in the world in general, it benefits everybody. Things like he for she, which was supported by um, Emma Watson mm. uh, for the United Nations, her speech is fantastic, and I think that it's a really important message to promote yeah absolutely and um i think she even um she used to sneak out on england on boats and fishing boats to go to different lectures across europe and even went to see lenin speak in russia which was wow. really cool um and it, it, it's interesting because on on the one hand i think wow she really did create such a movement but on the other hand I don't necessarily know if all of that ideology would have been sustainable and, and necessarily something that I agree with, but I think that it's so important to sort of consider it as a whole and just really, really emphasise the fact that she was so anti-war and even though her mum and her sister were sort of saying, you know, we need to do our bit to help our country, we need to all help the war effort, they were quite nationalist. She was basically saying, actually, this war is wrong and it's going to affect the working class the most yeah. and the most unfairly and this needs to stop. And mm-hmm. really stood up for that. And, again, I didn't and I think that that, that was partly why there was this breakaway from the women's social and political union mm. because they, her sister and her mother, Emmeline and Christabel, wanted to press pause on the campaigning in order to help the war effort Mm. and I think that Sylvia was so anti-war that she Mm. felt that that wouldn't be the right Mm. thing to do Mm. but again a devil's avocado here you know at the time of the first world war when you know you had all of the men in your life shipped off I can see why that would have been a priority for them um completely Christabel interestingly um qualified as a lawyer qualified as a barrister I believe but wasn't able to practice because she was a woman. Um, she qualified at the University of Manchester. And uh, Sylvia gave birth to a son who she named Richard. after her father, Richard, refused to marry the father um, of the boy and 
government and lots of people who speak about civil use to refer to her son as the illegitimate boy, the illegitimate son. Mm. Um, and I, I, apparently that was one of the huge issues of contention for her mother. Her mother couldn't really understand why she did that. But that brings me back to m- one of my questions now is, I feel like there are so many similarities between Sylvia and the movement that she created then and now. And like we're even talking about, we even have conversations sometimes of, would you take your husband's name if you got married? And would you get married? And we have civil partnerships now. And it's like, well, she was doing that a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, And there's sort of this second wave of revolution sort of sparked on maybe from me too. Among I think we're other on fifth factors. wave, apparently. I know. According to Deborah Francis White, we're on fifth wave. Yeah, no, true. And, I'm, and there have been many, many waves. Of course, in the 60s and 70s, there was huge waves of feminism and so much progress and so much revolution. But I think given my age now and that I'm so interested in it and because of the sort of unique context of the last couple of years with Harvey Weinstein and particular sexual assault that's become the sort of number one, you know, obviously for them it was voting rights. And I feel like... Over the years, there's been more and more issues that have sort of brought all the feminism up to the surface, if that makes Definitely. sense. And so and did you I see, see the that... similarities between it, for sure. Yeah, and did you see that film, Suffragette? No. It was brought out a couple of years ago. Okay. I had the intention to watch it before we did this. Myself. So did I. I wanted to re-watch it. But we will, we'll have an evening and we'll watch it together. It's another one of Meryl Streep and Helena Bonham Carter and oh. uh, Carrie Mulligan's what? amazing films. It's really great. So my question to you is, if you had been born 100 years ago Mm. and you were 23, living in London, Mm. do you think that you would have more of an affinity with the suffragettes or the suffragists? Oh, do you mean like, quote-unquote, violence, non-violence? Yes. Um, Quote-unquote. Really good question. Really good question. Because I... Actually, there's part of me that wants to be like, oh my God, I would be chaining myself to such and such and I'd be raising you know I'd be causing all sorts of problems and then there's a bit of me that's a bit too much of a wuss to do that (laughs) honestly like I almost wish I had the balls to do it a bit more um but 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 potentially I don't know what I would have done and actually if you think about what it was like to be a woman especially an unmarried woman at that time I don't know that anger and that kind of motivation probably could have motivated me to do a lot yeah. Maybe I would. I think the other There's thing is definitely that... parts of my personality, as you know, that would be completely able to do that. But I, I just can't say. I think because we've grown up in a much more equal world than it used yeah. to be, it's hard to imagine how angry you would feel if you didn't have that basic thing of yeah. both being able to vote. Absolutely. I, I can't even imagine what that So it is like. really hard to and ask then, that question, obviously. But then when I, when I, I read can... more about the suffragette movement, I see films or I see documentaries, I get so riled up and so Me too. passionate. Me and I too. just think, you know what, I could have stormed on Westminster. Would Actually, you, would every you time I'm to... in an exercise class, a female exercise class, with empowering music and empowering teacher, the energy in that class and the collaboration and the sort of just... Oh my God. And these are women who are mothers. These are women who are CEOs. They're women who are doing all sorts of amazing things. I honestly think we could take down Westminster. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. (laughs) But just picking up on one of those words, collaboration, this is another thing that I loved that Scarlett Curtis touched on, is the importance of women working together in order to make change. This is why Me Too has been so revolutionary in terms of what it's doing to industries and exposing stories and things that have happened in you know so for the better so that it doesn't happen again and she said she said definitely she's like older women 
mentoring younger women, I could not identify that with enough. Like the importance of someone who's slightly older than you, who's who's much more accomplished, giving you that space, giving you that arm of support, giving you the time, giving you opportunities is so powerful. I, I almost can't agree. wait to do it myself because the women around me who I can think of who have given me those sort of opportunities, you know, my mother being the first one, obviously, um, quite literally, um, <laughs> you, you just, I can't, I can't thank them enough. And I think I have more women in my life that have done that than men. Yeah, but I, that's not to say that other women have different experiences, but I think it's no, so No, I completely powerful. agree. And the... The women who can give you advice and support is so mm. important and yeah. I just appreciate it so much. I just also loved learning about the suffragette movement in my immediate area where I grew up and I just feel actually so much more connected to it now. Oh, that sounds so corny. <laughs> no, I like that. It's good. It's yeah. really good to relate to it. Mm. And the other thing I would like to say just before we finish this section is that there is a campaign in order to get a statue of Sylvia Pankhurst yes, in, East um, in East London and we will put the link in our episode description. Mm. There's a committee. It's a committee of people. Well, it's great. If it's we've got the Sylvia Millicent... Pankhurst uh, com- Memorial Committee, which is really cool. We've got the Millicent Fawcett statue. She yeah. was suffragist. Yeah. It's in Parliament Square. She's the only woman. Yeah. And we need more we need sculptures more. of women. We need more sculptures of the women. The proportion is... Yeah, we really, really do. I want to cover that as another figure at some point. The second figure that we are going to be talking about today is that 26% of England secondary schools do not offer religious education. And this is in line with an article that you sent me earlier this week, which is about a report that's come out that has said that religious education should be renamed to religion and world views, Mm -hmm. I think. So what's your initial reaction to that? Do you think it should be changed? 100%. Yeah, Um, me too. I saw that and I jumped at it and sent it to you immediately and thought this is great because we live in a time now where people don't identify necessarily with religion as their primary, I don't know, it doesn't structure social our, structure. Yeah, it doesn't structure our society structure. in the same way not for so all. many people now. Not at all. And there's not really a subject in school other than history where you learn about politics, you learn about what's going on in the world. You know, I always used to think this all the time I was like for people who don't do history how do they know how voting works or like what a government is or how political and and you I guess you don't really learn about that you have to learn about that outside of school and I I think think that would be a really good opportunity to actually learn about how people live and how people um the way that people think yeah yeah I completely agree I think politics is a slightly separate thing I think it'd be great if it could all come into the same sort Mm. of subject which would be world views But I've always thought that there should be more politics in schools. If I hadn't had conversations with my parents, I literally wouldn't know what is left and what is right. No, not at all. And it was because I did history GCSE. If I didn't hadn't have done history GCSE and didn't study the interwar years and like the Weimar Republic and looking at that spectrum, I honestly wouldn't know. Yeah. And I think that this is the other reason that I really support lowering the voting age to 16, because I think that what we saw with the Scottish referendum, because that was the case, it actually got everybody talking about it in schools. It Mm. got people engaged in politics. It got people Mm. thinking, I actually have a voice on this. Mm. I can really think, what what kind of country do I want to grow up in? Mm. And what does my future look like if I vote yes and if I vote no? Mm. And with all the interviews that they did around the referendum, the ones from the 16 and 17-year-olds were by far the most informed and 
there's just so much more passion and energy and I love it and I think that that would be really beneficial. It's one of the reasons I um, I really liked the Corbyn campaign is a uh, positive benefit from his campaign um, was that it got everyone talking about politics and lots of young people yeah. who would never engage before or, or adults who would never engaged and he was he managed to reach so many people. He started the conversation. Oh, 100%. And that's not to say that I agree with every bit of his politics. No. Um, but I absolutely love that he started that. So in my thinking of this, I started to think of what are the things that I learned in RS at school. And I learned... We, we're, we so you called it religious studies, not yes. religious education. Yeah, okay, religious so studies. I called it RE. Oh, it was RS. Yes. Um, and we did Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. We learned about all of them. And we had an amazing um, teacher, Father Kenny, who was... Um, a gay priest and he was amazing he would be able to talk about things like gay marriage like abortion um, super openly in like a very safe non-judgmental space but I don't think that that's actually always the case and I, I think, think that's quite that unusual I think completely that's unusual. a lack of specialist teachers or teachers who have the I think the headspace to actually think what is a really interesting thing to mm -hmm. open these children up to and to discuss actively. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of my RS lessons were literally copying down different principles from a whiteboard and then learning them. And, then learning them. Mm -hmm. and there were parts of it that I found really interesting. I really liked learning about Hinduism and the caste system in India and the like different the names of the gods. Yeah. yeah, and Buddhism I always have found fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking about this, and again, I, I read this stat that said uh, at least, um, what, 30% of the population identify with being religious in this country, which is actually very low. It's one of the least religious countries in the world, actually, at this. And I think, you know, do we think Christianity is part of who we are as British? So much of our history is to do with Christianity, so much so that actually our Queen technically is the head of the Church of England. So she is technically God's representative on earth um, in a Christian sense. And they cover that in the crown really well. Absolutely. And so uh, that also got me thinking and thinking, well, if we are, you know, as a 70%, if we're taking this stat, don't believe that we're religious, what do we, who do we see the Queen as? And is that going to make the monarchy even harder to hmm. become new and fresh and you know, when the Queen passes away, is it going to pass on to William and Harry or William and Kate? And if we renounce religion, do we renounce the monarchy as well? Mm. Like, those things to me seem quite... Um, I think that what they can hand. represent is the... Because if the Queen is, is religious, then she literally has no place. Like, she has to be religious. Like, yeah. she has to be. Yeah. I think that what they can represent in a broader sense is the Christian values, mm. which is actually the values of almost any religion if you look They're at if love. you yeah, yeah it's all love it's loving your neighbor it's accepting yourself mm. it is having a basis of a community and community i think is a really important aspect of it and sometimes on sunday nights i go to yoga and for me that is a bizarre equivalent of going to church because it's a time to reflect it's a time of silence and it's something that I can do with other people and just feel calm and ready for the week ahead. And I think on that, the rise of yoga and of mindfulness and of meditation, especially with all the conversations around mental health, because it can be so helpful for some people, is meditation and mindfulness. Mm. And I think that there's 
a spiritual aspect of that which people are really engaging with and tapping into and I would very much separate spiritual and religious I would never describe myself as religious I don't having studied it and looked at the structures of those hierarchical Mm. religions I don't acceptance of a dogma or a sort of something that's imposed onto you rather than spirituality it's very much in your control and what you connect the way I see it is quite an religion is quite an exterior thing for me personally spirituality is quite an interior thing mm-hmm. and, I love and that. in as much more inclusive and without the boundaries and without the rules and you just make it how you want it to be and also much more ancient in the mm-hmm. for as long as humans have been on this earth as far as I have like researched we've always had stories and myths and legends which bring us together mm. and that's kind of part of spirituality as well Definitely. of just thinking you know when I have a coincidence and I meet somebody like is there just something where yeah. we're more in tune with each other and you or just or you like, meet somebody and already. you just click with yeah. them it's those little everyday things which are part of absolutely. why I would describe myself as oh, a spiritual that. person I absolutely <laughs> love that um and and one of those, one of the, going on from that and feeling that sort of, those little everyday things, I was looking at what humanism is about. Philosophical (laughs) and ethical stance that emphasises human beings specifically. So it's very kind of practical, a lot of critical analysis, and um, I guess non-religious, but also um, very much also associated with sort of academia and the Renaissance. I think why I wanted to sort of associate myself with some kind of humanism or some kind of spirituality is because I think that the idea that there's not anything after death actually scares me a bit. Mm. And I think with humanism is one something that I can identify with the most, even taking as much critical analysis in as possible. Yeah. It kind of combines all of the factors for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. And humanism is fascinating. And I learned a lot about it when I was studying the Renaissance as part of history of art. So it basically was God-centric to human-centric. Right. And it shifted the medieval way of thinking because prior to that, everybody was preparing for the next life. Right. So it was about being pious, it was about saving your money, it was about making sure that your sins had all been washed away, and then this ended up becoming part of the usury that was in the church as well, which was essentially when people would pay in order for the church to say, we clear you of your sins. And so there was a corruption element of it as well. Huge parties. But when this shift came that it wasn't preparing for the next life, it was about what can I achieve in this life? Mm. You have artists like Leonardo da Vinci. It's like mm. how many discoveries can I make? What can mm. I create? And it's a lot of beauty is a part of humanism as well and celebrating the human form. I also have a theory that religion is partly why we feel shame about our bodies and sex. Oh, for sure. For because sure. Sex is a sin, drinking is a sin. Uh, politics have traditionally also well, all comes down come to, to da- down to religion and actually imagine if we didn't have shame about sex and our bodies and drinking mm. but we wouldn't have as many drinking problems mm. and i bet we wouldn't have so many issues surrounding talking about sex and feeling okay in, within ourselves because they still feel like sin you know no sex before marriage like why yeah. is that it's all yeah mm, you know mm-hmm. so and that sort of comes from that and that's mm. not saying that i i don't um, respect anyone who wants to do that that's completely no, fine not but I feel all. like the idea that it's associated with the word sin is just yeah. quite destructive yeah 
But um, going back to this change and the, the stat that we've chosen of school and religious education and worldview. So secularism, agnosticism, atheism and humanism would all be covered as part of this religion and worldviews. And I just think it's a great way to have more understanding and empathy for the different ways that people work and, and live and the importance that it has for so many people. And I think that when you understand something, you have a lot more respect for it. The third figure this week is the image of the cartoon that was made about Serena Williams and the final of the US Open. And I remember seeing the cartoon for the first time and and, and feeling sick. Like I I literally felt sick. It's awful. It's done by an Australian cartoonist called Mark Knight who has defended his cartoon. He Mm. says that it's not racist. He says that it's not misogynistic. He's done the same with male. And he says that he's done a similar style with Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. He's called Nick, isn't Kyrgios, he? Kyrgios, yeah. Um, Who's hilarious. He's the moodiest teenager ever. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, people don't necessarily attach that to his name first off. Yeah, and the newspaper that published the cartoon, which was the Herald Sun in mm-hmm. Australia, have also defended um, all of the accusations that it is racist and misogynistic. And... Subsequently, Mark Knight has actually come off Twitter. I think he's received so much abuse. And I've got to say, rightly so. It is. It makes me sick, yeah, this does. cartoon. I think having spent actually quite a lot of this podcast talking about progress, this makes me think, wow, mm. how are we still here? Mm. And I think a really important element to draw attention to, which uh, Yasmin Abdel Magid spoke about who she was the one who did the justice for Nora campaign and drew our attention to that Mm -hmm. she talks about the invasion of australia and the racism there's a sort of unconscious element of that which has probably played into very believable having visited as you have done there definitely is an element of that for sure Mm. um that's a really interesting point i I didn't actually Mm. think of that immediately um and i want to just shout out to to an episode on the high load that they covered this amazingly and i just wanted to reiterate what they said which is yes she shouldn't have have done what she did it wasn't the most professional thing oh just to just to rerun what actually happened yes so she was coached during the u.s final which i think is problematic in itself because Mm. serena didn't actually break the rules herself her Mm. coach broke the rules this happens quite a lot in tennis from what i understand and she was then penalised. She ended up becoming very, very, very angry. Just to, to, to let everyone know, what does coached mean? I think he made a hand gesture, okay. hand signal. And the umpire believed that he, the coach and Serena were communicating, which yeah. is against the rules of tennis. Mm-hmm. And everybody has acknowledged, okay, yes, this is correct. Like The yeah. umpire made the correct call. However, some people in tennis have said... Why is it that for many male tennis players, this is sort of overlooked? Mm. And why is it called out for a black female tennis player? And then comes anger and anger and anger. And she ended up breaking her racket. She ended up verbally abusing the umpire. And she's been charged $17,000 fine for her behavior. So 10,000 for verbally abusing the umpire, 4,000 for the uh, coach aspect of it 
and then $3,000 for smashing her racket. Wow. Yeah. And Serena has since reacted to this fine, and she said... She was really emotional, obviously, when she was on the interview doing this, and she was saying, I hope that I'm going to draw enough attention to this that this won't happen for the next person. And her husband has also described it as blatantly racist and misogynistic. The cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the... Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two elements of it. There's yeah. the there's the judgment of the umpire mm-hmm. as questions of whether that was sex, sexist or not, and yeah. then there's the cartoon. And I think what what was important to point out is that the set the bit that's sexist isn't like yes, she should not have had a meltdown. <laughs> one could, one could say that she could have been more professional. Yes. No, I actually the, agree with that. I think, and that I it's... I think so too. I think the bit that's sexist is you have people like Kyrgios, like oh, what's the guy it was on the line on the line John John oh yeah the tennis player who's constantly like um, rebutting everything the umpire is saying he did that for years Andy Murray's bloody moody when he's playing like it's it's and they literally no one cares Mm. so yeah I feel I feel like it is a double standard it is a double standard and I think because she's a woman and because she has a child, people think, oh, you need to be a saint now. I just can't believe how much motherhood has come into this debate. It just isn't... Why does it have to yeah, be a the part Hilo, of it? The Hilo brought that up really well. But then the other thing I'd like to say is that... Um, Love the Hilo. We, <laughs> in case you didn't realise, we talk, it's basically a podcast talking about oh, the Hilo. I love it. Um, what Serena said to Osaka, she said that she was proud of me and that I should know that the crowd weren't booing her and I think that this is the other thing that's really important to highlight is that Naomi Osaka has been treated in almost as bad almost as badly as Serena has in this um cartoon because John McEnroe (laughs) sorry continue (laughs) I thought you were going to say John McEnroe but then I thought you were talking about tennis players who are still playing now no I mean he used to give the umpires all sorts of oh he was so annoying Anyway, anyway, yes. we got there in the end. Yeah, so um, in the cartoon, Naomi Osaka, who is the first Japanese tennis player, I think, to ever win the US Open. Where has that not been talked I about? I think that's right. Wow. I mean, she's really young. She's fantastic. 20 She well. really, really looks... She looks up to Serena Williams. And for, by the sounds of it, that has not changed. No. from Because she sort of took her to one side and she said... And they gave each other a big hug. And I think that it's... It's become more about women's tennis in general, this whole debate. But yeah, in the in the cartoon, Naomi Osaka is, in um, J.K. Rowling's words, reduced to a faceless prop. Yeah. And she's a sort of skinny, tall, blonde, faceless person in this cartoon. And you just think, oh my God, mm. how are you able to do that to the person who's just won the US Open? Mm. Am I saying that right? Not Open. Yeah. Is it called the US Open? Absolutely. So it's the same in golf and tennis? Yeah. Why have I never realised that before? Um, <laughs> Sidetrack. And, I, and I, I just think as well for the cartoon, the thing that really I find just so awful is that it's basically made her look big, quite scary, the way they've done her hair. This is one of the most gorgeous mm. women, one of the most talented women, and one of the best athletes of all time. And of all men and women. Of all men and women, regardless of men and women. And you've, you've pretty much made a laughing stock out of this. And it really, really, it just, I just feel, oh, 
just I hope that in 10 years from now we don't have to see this and I hope that this sort of race I think it's really racist I really think that cartoon is well, so there are all sorts of comparisons to um something called Little Black Sambo which I think was a children's book I want to mm. say mm. and it's just features like exaggerating the lips exaggerating and, the lips and the body and, and the, the body hair. and yeah and just but also the way that he's had her you know stomping on her racket and she's got a dummy and the on the court and the way that her skirt is completely open and lifted at the back as mm. if she's flashing everybody behind her mm. I just think it's the most offensive cartoon I've ever seen but mm. the other thing I wanted to say in general for cartoons is that almost I don't ever find them funny I think that there's this why do we why do we just accept it always mm. all of the politicians are constantly reduced to these constantly. horrible horrible Theresa cartoons Theresa May has probably had some of the worst I've ever seen in my life and again I think is she the best prime minister no do I agree with her politics absolutely not all of them do, do I think there'll be someone better as a leader a hundred percent yes do I think she gets much more shit because she's female yes 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 yeah and why do we need to do these kind of cartoons to anybody? Yeah, I know. It's mm. almost always negative. Mm. But then I think on the flip side of this whole debate and issue over this cartoon, I am very grateful for Twitter because we actually have a platform in which to call this out and yeah. in which to say to everybody, this is not okay. Mm. And yes, Serena probably shouldn't have behaved in no, the way that she shouldn't did. Have. Definitely shouldn't have. However... That's not how you representing react to it. it in that way is absolutely awful. And I just wanted to finish by reading out Billie Jean King's tweets because I really thought those oh, yeah. hit the nail so on the head. So her first tweet was, "Congratulations on winning the 2008 U.S. Open, Naomi Osaka. This win is just the beginning of a bright future. Tennis is an exciting place right now with players like you." Fantastic. And then she says, "Several things went wrong during the U.S. Open Women's Final today. Coaching on every point." should be allowed on, in tennis. It isn't. And as a result, a player was penalised for the actions of her coach. This should not happen. When a woman is emotional, she's hysterical and she's penalised for it. When a man does the same, he's outspoken and there are no repercussions. Thank you, Serena, for calling out this double standard. More voices are needed to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. Please, please, please keep continuing to leave your feedback and if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five star rating as that would really help us out <laughs> <laughs> yeah it helps other people find the podcast and we really appreciate all of your lovely feedback if you'd like to get in touch you can do so through twitter or instagram we're at figure podcast and you can email us at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com and we'll always try and, and update our instagram with things we're liking or events that we're going to so be sure to check it out. Until next week. Bye-bye.